Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Before we get started with our new year of episodes, I thought I'd take a look through some of the feedback we received last year and see if there's anything we could do to improve the show. All right, yeah, that makes sense. And one of the most consistent bits of feedback we've had, besides replacing you... What? ...is that the intro to our main theme song is too sudden and shocking for a lot of listeners. What? This bit? That one. Oh, right. Yeah, I guess it is a little bit jarring, isn't it? Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, if that's causing some listeners to jolt out of their seats every time they hear it, maybe we should fix it. That's a great idea, Ryan. So I had a go at tweaking it. Sounds good. Let's hear it. And it sounds like this. Mm, Ryan, I'm not sure that's any better. Oh, uh, okay. Well, how about this then? Just, just no. Right. Well, plan B then is to replace the entire theme completely and go with something more conventionally podcasty. Such as? Well, how about this? Sounds like a true crime podcast. Yeah, yeah, they're very popular. But Ryan, we aren't a true crime podcast. Okay, well, what about this then? Well, now that sounds like the music for a news and politics show. And that's bad because... We aren't a news and and politics politics show. Exactly. Oh, well, then I'm out of ideas. What are we going to use for the theme for 2024? I don't know. Well, wait, what if we did a short episode where I dove into what the song was? You mean like tell us some facts about the origins of the song, where it came from, who made it and that kind of thing? Exactly. So what you're saying is in this one-off episode, you're going to tell us all about theme music in the HHE podcast during 2020 to 2024? Yes, I am. When do you want to start? After this. History happened everywhere. Hello, I'm Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the end credits to my theme tune. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. That's right. Didip, 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 So, Ryan. <laughs> so, Ryan, it looks like we're going to be talking about theme music, our theme music in the HHE podcast. That's us during 2020 to 2024. That's when we've been podcasting. So, what have you got? Well, look, so the main theme that we use for HHE podcast is called Buga Blue. Buga Blue? That sounds like a terrible disease. <laughs> it does a little bit. You're right. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a recording which lasts about eight minutes and 20 seconds in length and for those that want to hear the entire thing it's available on cd digital download and all good streaming services just look up buga blue did we ever consider running the full eight minutes as an intro every week (laughs) no that would probably work against us i would think (laughs) now it is described as a vibrant and energetic track with an infectious groove that keeps listeners engaged Infectious groove. I told you it was a disease. I've got a bad case of infectious groove. <laughs> I was more focused on the keeps listeners engaged. But, ah, you know. right. Yeah, that's probably a more important fact. <laughs> <laughs> it has a driving beat and a catchy melody which instantly grabs your attention, making it a perfect track to get your foot tapping and spirits lifted. 
What says HHE more than that? That says exactly HHE. That's what we're all about. Yeah. So it's considered big band music. And uh, it's the result of a musical ensemble coming together, consisting of around 18 musicians playing a wide range of instruments that include four alto saxophones, two tenor saxophones, four trumpets, four trombones, a piano, a guitar, a bass, and drums, and the occasional sprinkling of percussion. Yeah, if you're the guy travelling around with a piano, you've got to envy the percussionist and the guitar players and the chap with the flute, haven't you? <laughs> well, just the percussion guy. Guy with a triangle, that's the uh, that's the best <laughs> instrument to carry around with you. Bing! Right at the end. <laughs> Glory hunter. <laughs> <laughs> so, Buga Blue. It's listed as track 10 of 11 on an album called Live at Blues Alley, which refers to the live recording which took place in January of 2010 in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. in the United States of America. Yeehaw. Live (laughs) at the legendary Blues Alley nightclub. So legendary, that's the first time I've heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm not a blues man, though, so that's fair. Well, that's the thing, right? So in the world of music, Blues Alley is recognised as an institution. In fact, it is America's oldest continuously operated jazz supper club. Oh, I feel like I've always wanted to be the kind of person who goes to a jazz supper club, but I am not. I picture it in my mind as one of those ones where you have little round tables. Little round tables with a little lamp on and a woman coming around with a sort of a tray of cigarettes around her neck. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So yeah, it's nearly 70 years old is Blues Alley. And over the years, it's graced legendary icons like Muddy Waters. Now when I was a young boy At the age of five my mother's child gonna be the greatest man alive. Etta James. At last, my love has come along. Miles Davis. And the occasional presidential jamming session. Both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama have performed there. Come on, baby, don't you want to go? Same old place, sweet home Chicago. Excellent. Is that a Democrat-leaning musical style then? <laughs> I'm just not sure if Republicans play jazz. I think it they like, like it's their thing. Marching bands seems like more of a Republican thing, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And so, yes, some of that success clearly rubbed off on Buga Blue because following the album's release, Live at Blues Alley, uh, it received a wave of warm reviews, with one in particular complimenting its musicality, authenticity, and ability to connect with listeners on an emotional level. 
Devil. What does that sound like, Pete? Sounds like would make good podcast theme tune. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) So, in fact, a year later, in 2011, the album even won the American Forces Entertainment Music Award for Best Jazz Ensemble. Ah, it's an army band, is it? Well, that brings us to the name of the band, because we've heard the name of the song, we've heard the name of the album, but not the name of the band. Well, I wouldn't do a very good job of introducing them, so why don't I play you track number one from the album, and you can hear it done professionally. Let's have it. Uh, my name is Harry Schnipper. I'm the owner of Blues Alley. You are engaged tonight in an historic moment. I can look back here upon the orchestra, and I can honestly say that you are seeing one of the swingiest bands in America today. <laughs> here to my right, let's give a big hand, a big Blues Alley welcome to the United States Army Blues. Swingiest. (laughs) Swingiest, that's right. That was Harry Shipper, manager of Blues Alley, introducing the U.S. Army Blues. As he says, the swingiest band in America today. Who doesn't want the coveted title of the swingiest band? (laughs) (laughs) But I hear you, Pete. I hear you saying who or what are the U.S. Army Blues. I kind of had some assumptions, but carry on. (laughs) (laughs) Good, because I'm going to tell you about them after this. All right. Hello, Blues Alley. Oh, hi. I've got a ticket for tonight. I was wondering if I could get some directions to the venue. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, Do you know Gloom Avenue? Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, head south for a couple of blocks and take a right onto Downer Drive. Okay. On the left there, you're going to find Crippling Depression Parkway. Go down that for about half a mile. Got it. Then left onto I Just Want to End It All Street, and you're going to find us at the junction on the corner of Sadness and Goodbye. Righto. Oh, thanks. Okay, and uh, don't forget to get here before seven. Why? What happens then? Well, it's happy hour. So to understand the U.S. Army blues, we need to go back in time, Pete. Not to early man, (laughs) but but to Missouri in the middle of the 19th century. All right. With the birth of one John Joseph Pershing on September 13th, 1860. He was a missile of a man. That's right. He was the oldest of five children. He got educated. He worked as a teacher before finally attending the United States Military Academy at West Point, where he graduated in 1886 and immediately saw military service fighting campaigns against Native American tribes out on the wild frontier. Was that the campaign in the sense of a mostly massacres or uh, was it a two-way combat? Depends on your perspective, Pete. (laughs) That's another episode entirely, isn't it? It is indeed. In fact, it was whilst serving in the 10th Cavalry, which happened to be one of the African-American regiments, that he earned the nickname Black Jack. I wonder if you can imagine why he might have earned that name. Uh, I enjoyed uh, playing cards a lot. He liked those little licorice sweets. If you're an English listener, you'll love that joke. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, everyone else. Bit niche. So yeah, so Pershing's leadership and performance was commended and soon he found himself leaving America to participate in the Spanish-American War of 1898, followed by the Philippines in 1899. By 1905, he was selected by President Theodore Roosevelt, no less, for promotion, and he was given the rank of Brigadier General. That sounds high. (laughs) It is super high. In fact, it was controversially high because he actually bypassed a number of his more senior officers. 
Spurs. <laughs> I'm sure they were very pleased. Famously, people love being leapfrogged in the rankings. <laughs> <laughs> in this new role, he was sent to serve as a military observer in Japan during the Russo-Japanese War before he returned back to America in 1915. Unfortunately, this was after receiving news that his wife, Frances Warren Pershing, and three of their four children had died in a house fire in San Francisco. Ooh, rough. Two years later, though, in 1917, the Americans enter the First World War, and Pershing is appointed as the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces in Europe. And under his command, American forces play a critical part in turning the tide against the Central Powers. Now, after the war, Pershing is promoted to the rank of General of the Armies. This was a title that had not existed up to that point. It had been created especially for him, making him the highest ranking officer in the whole of the United States Army. Oh, he's inventing his own titles. That's great. Lord High General <laughs> of the Armies. Grand Excellent Marshal <laughs> Vizier. <laughs> I love the fact that he added, of the armies. <laughs> That's because the admirals were eyeing him going, you don't even try it. <laughs> now, over the next three years before his retirement, Pershing worked to modernise and professionalise the army, using his experience having travelled around the world and seen all the other nations' militaries in action. And he advocated for a unified command structure, he promoted the development of mechanised forces, so tanks, and also air power as well. But one of the less obvious things he looked to change was the introduction of a professional full-time military band. Nice. Well, you've got to have fun too. It's not all blowing things up, you know. Blowing down a trumpet. I don't know. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> okay. Now, having seen the importance of music in a lot of the European armies, where it was used as sort of a boost to help troop morale and serve as a representation of the army and the nation in a professional manner, Pershing demanded that the US Army establish a higher standard for their own military music. And so, on January 25th, 1922, the US Army Band was formed and affectionately nicknamed Pershing's Own in his honour. Oh, nice. So the US Army Band, even to this day, is known as the US Army Band Pershing's Own. Ah, that sounds like a brand of uh, flour or humbug or something. <laughs> Pershing's Own. <laughs> <laughs> Now, based in Virginia, under the leadership of Warrant Officer Francis Lee, the band quickly established itself as the musical organisation of the nation's senior armed service. Frank Lee. Frank Francis Lee. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Lee, my dear, is here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they held their first public appearance four months after they were established on April 27th, 1922, which you'll notice is just over 100 years ago. Ooh. Now, the band had its first radio broadcast on April 16th, 1923, and from then on they went on a bit of a run of activity. They played at the 1925 inauguration of President Coolidge, they played at the 1924 and the 1925 World Series. In 1927, they played at a ceremony to honour Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis, which was the first flight to make it across the Atlantic Ocean in one go. Uh, the band even held their first international concert in 1929. They travelled to play an Ibero-American exposition in uh, Seville in Spain. 
Nice. But it was in the 1930s where the band really developed a popular following. And this is because through the power of radio, the band was able to reach American homes. And by playing four or more broadcasts a week, they reached a point in 1934 where a poll was taken of radio listeners around America who ranked the US Army band as their foremost choice of band to listen to. Wow. There you have it. People's choice. It was indeed. Now, World War II put a stop to this, though, and the band assumed uh, slightly more sombre responsibilities. In 1942, for instance, they were playing at the funerals of deceased servicemen at Arlington National Cemetery. In 1943, the band was ordered overseas, first to North America, then the United Kingdom, during which period they actually performed for the troops preparing for the Normandy invasion, and then later at the hospitals when the injured men returned. So what you're saying is, are you coming in your landing craft, like at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, and the front lid falls down and the beach is exposed before you and you hear in the background, War! (laughs) The subject is war, now, here! Yeah, so look, they continued their European tour through France and into Belgium. They played concerts, but also sadly experienced the terror of a German V2 rocket bomb attack where their uh, clarinetist Flavius Bartlett, he was wounded by the rocket attack, subsequently then went on to receive the Purple Heart. Nice, I was going to say, you get a medal for that, don't you? Yes, you do. Now, at the end of the war in Europe, the band helped the people celebrate in style. They marched in a parade on the Champs-Élysées in front of the Arc de Triomphe uh, before returning to the United States just one month later. The 1950s brought a slight turn in direction and a few changes were made to the US Army band. They brought in various pop singers, people like Eddie Fisher. They're not making the skies as blue this year wish you were here as blue as they used to when you were near wish you were here and steve lawrence i've gotta be me i've gotta be me what else can i be but what i am they both joined the unit and public concerts were held with them plus various other guest stars who started to perform with the band. So hang on, Eddie Fisher as in Carrie Fisher's dad? As in Princess Leia's dad and I don't mean Darth Vader. Wow. Spoilers. (laughs) I think you're all right with that one at this point. (laughs) So yes, there was this new air of showbiz about the US Army band. And that was perhaps best reflected visually by their new uniforms, which were known amongst the crew as the Lion Tamer. And that was. (laughs) (laughs) I've already got something in my mind. (laughs) And that is because it was a bright mustard yellow jacket with blue trousers, belt, and a blue hat. That's what you want it's... going into battle on the front lines. Of... <laughs> sure about this, guys. <laughs> High visibility workwear. So, yeah, and then through all of this extravagance of the 1950s, it also saw the formation of a number of different U.S. Army spin-off bands. Uh, I think it's the best way of putting them. <laughs> like the U.S. Army Strings, which featured predominantly string-based instruments. Uh, the U.S. Army Chorus... 
don't know if you can guess what that is. I'm going to guess mostly the singers. Yes, right. Vocal contingent. Yeah. In 1959, the US Army Herald Trumpets. Any idea what they do? I think they were the drummers. They're not the drummers, no. Did the, did the drummers not get their own spin-off? Can you imagine? You'd be called War Drums. That'd be awesome. That would be good, yeah. <laughs> no, the US Army Herald Trumpets uh, were modelled after the traditional British fanfare trumpets. You know, when the monarchs come in and... <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Those long, straight trumpets with a flag hanging off them. That's exactly them, yeah. And uh, to this day, they still serve as the official fanfare ensemble to the President of the United States. Oh, nice. Pipe him in, pipe him out again. Yeah, and they can be seen playing as the President welcomes in foreign ambassadors, royalty and heads of state, that sort of stuff. Here comes Carrie Fisher again. So, yes, in 1963, the US Army bandsman Sergeant Keith Clark, he sounded Taps, which is the musical tune for the funeral of President John F. Kennedy. Well, the rest of the band played hymns as the casket was placed at the funeral in Washington, D.C. In 1969, what happened in 1969, Pete, that was notable? My brother was born. Yes, that's right. The US Army <laughs> Band played for the arrival of your brother. Oh, uh, was it the moon landings? It was. They played for the return of the Apollo 11 astronauts from their historic moon landing. But anyway, look, in January 1972, the band celebrated its 50th anniversary, and they did this by forming a couple of other new spin off bands. The Army Brass Quintet. Can you guess what that was? That was a my a colliery band. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the Army Blues, a unit established specifically to perform contemporary jazz music. Nice. And you're gonna hear more about them after this. Oh, he's gonna to wanna to do a, I can't do sketches. I've got that kind of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well we'll skip the sketch then, shall we? Just ima- hey listener, there's a sketch here. Imagine it. Funny, brilliant twist at the end. You loved it. <laughs> Come on, Ryan, we've just learned about the blues band and the contemporary music they're playing. So, yes, we were. Now, the primary mission of the US Army Blues was to serve as a musical ambassador, if you will, for the United States Army. This meant performing at official events, ceremonies and public concerts, and uh, specifically doing sort of education around jazz, running workshops for students, that sort of thing. And to do this, they had to have an ensemble that were specialists in a wide range of jazz music, from big band swing to contemporary blues. To be a member of the band, you had to be a highly skilled professional musician, and you had to pass several rigorous auditions. It's not enough to swing. You must be the swingiest. That's right. I'm picturing whiplash, but like proper (laughs) army style. You know, those boot camp guys screaming in your face. I don't know, but I've been told. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> now, to be a member of the band, as we've said, you have to be a highly skilled professional musician, which means that you had to be a graduate of a prestigious music school and have had already years of professional experience. But because it's also an army band, you had to be a soldier. So each of them had to undergo military training and serve in the US Army. So do you join the band that's in the army or do you join the army really hoping that your trumpeting will get you in the band otherwise you end up on the front lines i suspect it's a bit of both if you're in the army and you're good at jazz you can probably apply as long as you get through the auditions um and if you're not in the army you can audition but you have to then go through soldier training right and so this is an elite crew of blues specialists <laughs> and this elite crew of blues specialists will put to work straight away can you imagine in the canteen it's like what do you do i'm a specialist at snipering what yeah. do you do i'm a specialist bomb at disposal. blowing things up bomb disposal what do you do jazz oboe <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they were put to work straight away, Pete. What do you think their first job was? I think it was uh, to entertain a kindergarten. It was not. It was to create a very special album of music for NASA. Oh, wow. So their first album was called Music for Martians. And it was supposed to be transmitted to the Mariner 9, which was a spacecraft that was orbiting Mars in 1972. But apparently some technical difficulties occurred, which meant that the music ultimately never reached the spacecraft and therefore no aliens have ever heard it. Instead, they accidentally sent up a copy of I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt. That's why the Martians who came down to visit immediately turned back <laughs> yeah. and went home. Now, even worse, it's apparently preserved now in archival vaults. So us Earthlings can't even listen to it either, which is a shame because it's said to be very strange and ethereal to listen to. Well, you know, that's what they say. Martians have all the best tunes. That's right. Now, in 1973, in a first for Pershing's own, violinist Elizabeth Holstius, she she was accepted into the blues unit. She was the first female in the US Army band. But she did pass their threshold for fantastically named instrumentalists. Elizabeth Holstius. <laughs> Between her and Flavius, what's his name from earlier? That's a creep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it comes with the job? Like, you just get a really awesome name. Uh, maybe, maybe they rename you as you enter. But anyway, since then, the US Army Blues has gone from strength to strength. They perform regularly in Washington, but also nationally and internationally. So no matter where you are, you might get a chance to see them. And they've produced several recordings over the years. They produced The Sound of America in 1973. They produced Stardust Serenade, which was a, which is said to be a romantic set of swing classics. They produced a Christmas special, A Swingin' Christmas, in 1983, <laughs> which is said to be a jazzy spin on festive favourites. Of course it is. The next was Blues by the Potomac in 1990, which embraces their blues roots. Their next album was Rhythm and Romance, featuring a bunch of Latin rhythms. Millennium Swing came in. What year do you think that came in? 2001 due to delays. <laughs> <laughs> this is military, Pete. This was on 2000 it came out. And of course, it was there to celebrate the new millennium. Or 2000, as we refer to it. <laughs> 2000, yeah. And of course, live at Blues Alley in 2011. Now, it's unclear who composed the song Buga Blue. But we do know that it was an original composition by the US Army Blues themselves. And we know that, one, because the Buga in Buga Blue stands for bugles. 
Ah, which of course is the famous military instrument. It's for signalling, isn't it? Or was originally for signalling a, a charge and retreat and bedtime, everyone. And oh, I'm sorry you died. Bedtime, everyone <laughs> makes it sound so pleasant. <laughs> Enough fighting. Come on, it's bedtime. And then, yes, uh, so that's one. And two, we know it was created by the band because army personnel are considered part of the US government. And as all works created by government employees are considered part of their official duties, so those works then fall under public domain. Yay! (laughs) today, their music, including Buga Blue, is available free of copyright. Handy for all, strapped for cash podcasts near you. (laughs) (laughs) So, in summary, Pete, I like to think of the US Army Blues and Buga Blue as the natural companion to our show. And I suggest that we stick with the theme for now. Like the band, we travel around the world educating and entertaining listeners with our historical jazz, each episode a unique composition of place, time and topic that swings and bebops with chaotic rhythm. And yes, like the theme, we too can be jarring from time to time and (laughs) go on for too long sometimes, but you can't deny we are full of life and character. But most of all, we're just like the US Army Blues – because we, like them, are not generating a profit. T-shirts and mugs are available at hhepodcast.com forward slash merch. Yay, from the swingiest podcast in town. That was terrific, Ryan. I thoroughly enjoyed that little foray into the music. I didn't actually know any of that. So uh, well done. I was very entertained and very educated. We've listened to that theme a lot. A lot, a lot. Over the past four (laughs) years. And uh, now every time we listen to it, we'll be thinking of the US Army Blues. We will indeed. Okay, so that is it for our special one-off show for 2024. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the jazzy things we've talked about on the show today, or if you just want to say hi, reach out to us through the website, hhepodcast.com, or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We would love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content like facts we didn't use, photos from the show and other bits of music that I might have left out from this episode. (laughs) And we'll be back again soon with Latin in Bahrain from 1939 to 1945. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. And a huge thanks to Buga Blue. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is Tip Tap Deep Boo. You've been listening to History Happened Everywhere. Hey Pete. Hey Pete. Hey Pete. Hey Pete, take your headphones off. Oh, sorry, mate. What, what was that? What are you listening to? Uh, anything good? Oh, you wouldn't know it. It's uh, kind of obscure. It's a sort of Bauhaus meets Electro Clash with Guatemalan folk rhythms kind of thing. Wow, that sounds impressive. Well, it is, but um, someone like you probably wouldn't really appreciate it. It's 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 a dance of harmony and dissonance, Ryan. It's got tritone substitutions and polyrhythms. It's not really for you. It's complicated. It's, it's artistic. 
Well, that's a shame. I would like to have a listen, though. Alexa, play the last song again on speaker. Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. It was on shuffle. Was it? I was being ironic. It's postmodern. Right. Can we put Barbie Girl on next? Yeah, go on. 